I cannot stand when people use that they need a certain type of technology in order to start. I think that those people are losers and that's a loser attitude and you really need to get out of that attitude. Hey, what's up? You're gonna love this interview with Sam Parr, the founder of The Hustle and the host of My First Million. We discuss the stair-step approach that Sam has taken to selling consecutively larger deals throughout his career, and a little bit about the scatterbrained, all-over-the-place entrepreneurial mind and how to lasso it. Enjoy. So, um, do you have the easiest name to pronounce of like any entrepreneur ever? I do. It's good. Sam, Sam Parr. My full name is Samuel Joseph Parr. Very Catholic, very uh, Midwestern name. Literally like the only error that one would make is giving you one R instead of two on the last name, right? It doesn't happen a lot. It doesn't happen a lot. But yeah, I've got a, I've got a good, uh, easy name. I feel like that's... Um... That's definitely an advantage. It's not like I've no another Sam Parr, but it's simple and distinct enough that everyone gets it right. That's good for a branding standpoint. I struggle. There's a, a country singer by the name of Aaron Watson who's like considerably larger than me, so I have to, you know, start figuring out. And I can't even wear like a crazy hat, and I'm just like the Aaron Watson that doesn't wear a cowboy hat. No, I'm lucky. I don't know. They're, they're, the only Sam Parr I know of, there's a state park in Illinois called Sam Parr State Park, but the guy was like alive in the 1800s, so I'm good. Nice. Um, so we have a concept on the show. We'll call it deal climbing. Uh, you know, other folks have, have different names for the same idea, but I feel like it's a really uh, helpful framework, particularly for people that are just ambitious. They're trying to climb. And if they're climbing from doing $10 deals to $100 deals, or they're climbing from doing $10,000 deals to $100,000 deals, it's the same stair-step approach that everyone has to go through in some way, shape, or form, whether or not they're even in a sales position, position, which is learning how to not only deliver more value, but get someone to sign on the line that is dotted at a higher ticket price. Um, you started off selling hot dogs. And uh, to my knowledge, the biggest uh, deal that you recently closed was the selling of your company for tens of millions of dollars. And I don't know if you remember, you actually commented on our video where we like speculated on how much you, you sold the company for when that happened. Um, but what I was, did I say? Uh, we were like trying to back into like what the minimum was and you were like, not wrong, but not right. Like you were like, basically like you're, you're in this. this. What, 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 was, what was the minimum, what number did you say? Um, I think we had said that it was over $20 million. And then like shortly after I saw Tucker Max commenting on a Twitter thread that someone had made the same speculation. He was like, that's not quite it right. Was, it was for sure over $20 million. So that's, I'll, I'll say that it was, and yeah. And also I own a lot of HubSpot stock and the stock market is really shitty today, but um, it, at its peak, it had tripled uh, from when we, or well, uh, maybe 2.5 X from when we'd sold. So, and it, but it like did that like within weeks or like months of us selling. So the, the price kind of almost changed rather significantly. So, um, we're going to get into that cause it's, it's an amazing thing. I'm not particularly technical. I'm not going to write the code that like builds the next software product, but having a substantial stake in a technology company is a, uh, uh, way to kind of draft off the, the trends of technology generally, but let's, let's go back. You were selling hot dogs. You had to figure out how to get someone to, you know, how much were you selling hot dogs for in the early days? So my prices in the, in the afternoon were different than my prices in the evening. Surge pricing. So evening prices, you double because it's drunk people. 
So evening prices, eight to ten dollars. Ten dollars for a pull a quarter pound pull or no, a third a pound pull of sausage with a drink. So ten bucks. And then in the day, half that. And so you were, you know, after you decided to really make the jump and try to start a company, you were before getting to the hustle, what were you selling? Were you selling yourself as a freelancer? Were you selling yourself as an employee? No, I um so when I was in college, I started tinkering with the internet and I made like an online store that was making like a thousand dollars a day at one point, but I didn't like do all the things correctly. Uh, like I didn't like, like I didn't know anything about filing taxes, getting business license and like things like that. And so I kind of shut it down. The lawyers at my college were like, yeah, you, you, you kind of need to start over and get this thing right. But like, I was like, well, all right, feel you, but that's kind of cool. I, I learned how to make like tens of thousands of dollars uh, selling stuff on the internet. And so um, I basically left school because I cold emailed this guy who owned a company called Air Bed and Breakfast in San Francisco. And I was like, I think this thing's going to be huge. I'll, can I come and join you? And he said, yeah. And I got a job offer at Airbnb. But back then it was like brand new. And I get there and I dropped out of school, moved out there. And I got the offer taken away because I had gotten in trouble um, and had been arrested before. I used to be uh, not the most awesome person. And I did some stupid stuff that I regretted. And they, I lied about it. I didn't tell them that I'd been arrested. And they were like, dude, you just told us like we would have, we would have, it's okay, but you lied. We can't hire liars. And they're totally right. So I got out there and I had nothing. So I met a guy and we started a company and we sold it. We made, I made like a hundred grand from it. Nothing substantial. What were you Not selling bad. at that company? It was a roommate matching uh, app. It started as I did it in like in person. I would basically host like roommate parties. And so everyone at that party had the same preferences. You know, they were like a single person by themselves in San Francisco, but getting a one bedroom was prohibitively expensive. And so they would, uh, we would help people team up in groups of twos, threes, and fours and get an apartment and we made money from that and what like what was being charged for that service i don't remember entirely but in the ballpark of three or four hundred dollars per room so that's a step up from selling hot dogs what was similar and what was different from those two sales uh the, uh ten dollars and three hundred dollars uh is mostly the same um in my experience um it was mostly the same the difference though is the value that what I learned is like, it's all about, it's about value given. So the value you get from one meal isn't significant. The value that you get from finding a place to live is quite high. So the name of the game is provide as much value as possible and still just take like a small take of that. And your take will be higher if it's a higher value thing. And theoretically, a roommate's going to be impactful for a year, whereas you're saying the meal is going to be impactful for an afternoon or an evening. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So it was about how much value you can provide and you just take a fraction of that. So the reason the sale was easy was because $300 was like a no brainer, like people. And we kind of had an honor system. We just said, find a place. And afterwards, if you find it through us, call me and we'll come pick up money. And it was so simple. But then we, uh, as we made money, we transitioned and we made it an iPhone app. So it was kind of like Tinder, but for roommates. And this was right when Tinder was like barely starting. And like, which is stupid. We should have just done Tinder for Tinder, right? Uh, but we did Tinder for roommates, and uh, yeah, it, it was it was it was hard, but okay of a 
it was a good first swing, I think. So if you sold that company, you, you made a hundred, uh, about a hundred thousand dollars or so you probably sold it for, I basically got like a good job and I, and with bonuses and I saved my money and I was there for one year and that was pretty much it. So selling that company, that's a substantial jump up from selling something for hundreds of dollars. What was the difference or what was the kind of gap there in, order, in terms of selling a company? Um, I think I was devalue, uh, uh, undervaluing myself. I think um, I started thinking in terms of hundreds of thousands of dollars and I, I was like, oh, that's a ton. What I didn't understand until actually like this year is that big companies need people like me, people who move quick and make stuff because big companies struggle with that. And I didn't understand how valuable that was. And so um, the biggest thing that I did then was I probably didn't do a good job of like negotiating. Um, I was pretty bad at, I was pretty bad at negotiating and probably still am. So now I have people that do it for me, even if it's just like my wife, she's good at it. But uh, yeah, I, I undervalued myself, I think for a long time. And then did you start the hustle shortly after that? No, I left that place after one year and one day. I was 20, some age between 23 and 25. I think I was 20. I don't remember. Uh, it was in 14. So it was 24. And um, I was like, I need to find something to do. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to run this event called HustleCon. And HustleCon was like non-technical entrepreneurs giving talks. And I was like, at we're at, at best, I'll break even. At worst, I'm only going to lose $10,000 hosting this event. But hopefully, I'll meet someone who I could partner with or something like that. And I hosted this event. I decided to do it. I, I made the decision to host it on May 1st. And I launched it. Like, it became an event on, like, June 14th. Or I forget the exact time, but it was six weeks. So I had six weeks from decision to it going live. And it made, like, 60 grand in profit. And it made profit because I, would, I created an email list. And I would write cool stories about the speakers. And I was like, huh, that's kind of cool. I didn't expect that to happen. So I basically just lived off that 60K for like eight months and traveled the country on a motorcycle. And then I did it again. And I did the same strategy of just creating a newsletter, writing about the speakers. And this time it made like two to $300,000 in profit. And I was like, all right, cool. I dig this. Um, I'm not going to be a conference person. I don't like running this business. This is hard. But I've been able to get a lot of people to notice my writing let's create a media company because I, I, if you see on my walls back here, I've got my heroes, uh, like three or four of them are media people. And I've always liked those guys. I was like, well, fuck, they could do it. I can do it too. So I decided to start a media company and I just researched what the best way to do it was. And I settled on starting with email. And that was, um, the email thing went live, uh, uh, basically 420, 2016. And so you were selling tickets to those events, but you had to also be selling sponsors, I would imagine. Uh, yes. And you yeah, were so also selling it took sponsors years. on the newsletter as well? Well, it took like a year to like get real sponsorship revenue. The way sponsors work, they want to see it, you could pull it off. So I was just living off the ticket revenue, to be honest. But uh, yeah, so like by the time we had done, uh, maybe like once we got to like our third event, we were doing three or 400,000, I think in revenue and it was like half sponsors half tickets and then we launched the newsletter and we had we got we, that newsletter already had like tens of thousands of people just from the conference and we just kind of switched it over and then through a bunch of blogging i got us to 100k really quick so basically we went from like zero to 100k in like a year and we started adding ads uh i 
I'm going to ballpark the numbers. We started having sponsors in the newsletter, some number between 50,000 and a hundred thousand. I don't remember exactly, but I do remember, uh, I was my goal with staff and all the events that we were hosting, we were spending like $25,000 a month. And I was like, I'm going to go out and get sponsors for $30,000 a month. And that $5,000 profit will give us enough profit to hire a salesperson. And so I did that. It took me about two months and I did that. And then we hired a salesperson and like within two months that went to like a hundred thousand dollars a month, uh, in, in monthly, uh, ads. So it's great to hire someone who can move the needle like that. But as you were just selling enough to keep the business afloat, what was the same about all these past sales, hot dogs, tickets, uh, roommates, and what had to, what was new that had to be learned? Um, the same was I always kept things real casual. And as you grow and get bigger, you actually, they're not, they're not casual. So we've closed multiple seven figure deals at the hustle. Those are not casual. Those are process driven and those are really hard. But when, when I was, I would sell, like when I first started, I would sell something for my first sponsor was law trades and Wealthfront, And I charged them a thousand dollars. And it was just like, kind of like hood. Like I was like, kind of like, it was kind of like done like a street style deal where I'm just like, dude, just give me a grand. And, and if it works, you advertise again. If it doesn't, you've only lost a grand, just like Venmo me. I, I we like, it was like really like not done the right way. And uh, maybe they even sent a check. I don't remember, but they like, were like, yeah, whatever, fine, dude, we'll, we'll give you a shot. And we did that. And then eventually I was like, all right, what, what's an in? They're like, all right, send us an invoice. I'm like, what's an invoice. <laughs> So I had to Google it and I like got some invoice software and it said like invoice 001. I was like, oh, screw that. Put like (laughs) 0035. Uh, Like, so it's like, this is our 36th. I don't want them to know this is my first time I ever sent an invoice. And then like learning like, all right, great. You ran the ad. We'll pay you in 30 days. I was like, wait, what? You don't pay me right away? That's crazy. Um, So like learning about that was different. But I, I feel like that's the only way to do it. So I almost have, a, I have a very similar story. In the first year of my company, uh, one of the Fortune 500 companies here in town reached out to help with uh, producing their like internal corporate comms podcast. And literally the exact same thing. They were like, send us an invoice. And I literally like it's invoicegenerator.com or .net or something. Yeah. And exact, literally like the exact same thing. It's like, <laughs> well, this can't be, you know, 001. We're going to like put a, you know, one, two, three or something in there at the beginning. Yeah, that's what I had to do to to look more legit. And then at first, even to get sponsors, I put like Ford in there as a sponsor, even though I've never <laughs> talked to them in my life. But I was like, man, if they see Fords in there, then they're going to know we're legit. And that's probably illegal, actually. But I definitely did it. Yeah. So, but, so maybe not recommending that to someone getting started, but the like pure hustle of like, just get a deal in the door that is legitimate, that is paid for in some way, shape or form, even if it's not yeah. super process driven and it was not process driven, having also conviction yeah. that like, there's something there value. like, it wasn't like you had a pretend tens of thousands of persons list. You had no, a real and, list. And we were under, again, undersold hard. So early on, I was like, I don't care. I like, I'm not gonna, I'm like, guys, I, I even said, no, I'm like, we're going to send your email to 50,000 people, pay me whatever you want, pay me two weeks after you could see the clicks, whatever's fair, just do it. I don't care. And that's what they did. And it came out to be like, Oh, I could charge like 20 to $30 per CPM. So like after like the first 10 clients, the next one, I was like, all right, it's $25 per CPM. And the results for our past clients are here. You could see them. So that like, it was like really like the, the early folks, and this is actually good if you're an advertiser. You find people like me who are early and you take advantage of them because 
they're going to take it, you know, it's a mutually beneficial relationship. I'm getting someone to trust me, even though like there's no necessarily a good reason to trust me because I'm a noob and they're going to get a good deal. So it's like a really mutually beneficial relationship. So I was happy that they were willing to do that. And they were happy that I gave, they got underpriced advertising. So it worked out really well. We both won. It's kind of rare that, you, but that's a really good framing of it is, uh, you know, a venture investor or some just any like uh, skilled investor in financial markets is looking for those young upstart companies that haven't necessarily been realized or appreciated yet. It's rare that you think of media buyers in that way, but it really does that it really is kind of what the elite at the job are probably doing. If you're a good media buyer, that's what you do. You find something that has a small following and you buy one year's worth of ads. And then you get it on the back end with all the, the growth that they're going to experience. Exactly. It's that's one of the best ways to do it. You get screaming deals that way. I think that you would be fantastic if that was like the position that someone just put you in, because from listening to my first million, like you put me on to uh, Huberman and Hormozy, who are literally like my two favorite uh, shows that are like must listens now. You definitely have and it probably comes from producing media uh, ability to appreciate when someone's kind of got it before the rest of the market. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely have that. And a lot of people have that. But when you when you see something that is like interesting and dynamic, I mean, if you look at the people we've hired, we've, we've hired a ton of nobodies, and they are now very much somebody. We have about five people that are like big shots now. And when we hired them, they didn't even have a Twitter. So we've done a really good job, I think, at spotting talent. Um, and so but a good media buyer should be good at that. So after you started getting advertisers for the hustle, the next things that you sold in my recollection were the trends groups. That was a, a, a kind of research paid community. Um, yeah, but that didn't happen for like two years. So like our ad business was doing like, I don't remember exactly 500,000 to a million dollars a month. Um, and I hate the ad business. I hate it because they limit, they limit what you can say. And I don't mind losing money in order to have free speech. But the problem was, is that my coworkers who were selling the ads were quota carrying. And if I said like, you know, F Goldman Sachs, I'm writing whatever I want. I have no problem hurting Goldman Sachs. I've got no problem hurting myself, but it, I, it pained me that Katie was now going to lose money. So I was like, ugh, this, I'm in this conundrum. So I really didn't like it. And so we decided to launch trends like two or three years into the business. And that was a paid subscription and a paid community. And that took off like that did really well right away. And uh, I mean, it did kind of well right away. And, and what was new about that sale? Cause it's recurring subscriptions, um, which is different than a lot of the other things that you've articulated. Although I guess an advertiser relationship could be similar, but it's, you know, a consumer sale. What, what did you have to learn to be effective there that uh, wasn't necessarily true in the other past sales? So with selling big ad deals, you know, we would, I started selling a thousand dollar deal. Then my team started selling tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and then millions. And the time it takes, the bigger the deal, the longer it takes. And uh, that's what I learned. So like, if it's like a $500,000 deal, there's like many meetings, many process. You have to use a lot of jargon. You've got to fill out RFPs and you've got to fill out, you got to become an official vendor. You got to get approval for this thing and that thing. And that is hard enterprise sales are hard which is what we were doing with a 300 dollars deal um i learned a lot about pricing so two major things there one copywriting i think is the most important skill not only in business but life a good copyright if, if you learn copywriting you'll it'll help you meet a wife a husband like copywriting basically means understanding what motivates people and manipulating them to do what you want them to do so like 
um, I want you to, I, I want, I want, I want to convince people slavery is bad. I'm going to use like what motivates other people. And I'm going to like make them feel and agree with me that it's bad. I want them to buy this product. Then I'm going to appeal to their emotions and, and appeal to their logic and get them to buy this, you know, whatever. I want to meet this woman. I want her to like me. I'm going to figure out like what motivates her. And I'm going to try and get her to like me. That's what copywriting basically is. So I think everyone should learn it. And I, I'm a hardcore copywriter and I use that for trends. And so trends was just copywriting all that's what sold it. And we actually had $50,000 in pre-sales just from like a word document that explained what it was and it killed it. And the second thing that I learned was pricing. So the 299, we charged $300 at first. I should have charged either $99 or $2,000. 399 or 299 is no man's land. That's that's bad. You want to charge either cheaper because 299 is not an impulse buy, but the person paying 299 very likely would probably be willing to spend one to two thousand dollars. And so it was a bad pricing, but we scaled that business nicely regardless, even though that was a pretty huge mistake. That was almost a that's almost a game changer mistake. And when did you realize that? Because I I've looked at trends and it's still roughly in that price range yeah and for two reasons well one big when we sold like hubspot doesn't care about revenue that we make so frankly i think we should i i actually am going to talk to him after this i'm like dude make it 99 dollars, just make it cheaper um but yeah I, if i was if i owned it it would be different um and then was there another big sale before selling your company to hubspot or is that the the kind of coup de gras here no, we had this thing that we were about to launch called Trends Guides, and we were charging—I uh, forget the exact price—but it ranged from ten, uh, two to ten thousand dollars, and it was a research thing. And so, basically, companies who wanted to know—so, uh, the hustle tells you about news, Trends tells you about specific trends and businesses, and then Guides was one level up, and that was like we're going to tell you about very specific niches and and one very specific business model in that niche. So if you want to, if you're a media company, you pay ten or twenty grand a year, and we're going to break down like how the hustle is doing blank. So you, big media company at Warner, can just like know exactly what they're doing and stay on top of it. And then you can meet the other buyers of that. So you can meet like the cool young media companies. You can meet the older media companies, your peers, and we could all talk about the tactics that we're learning. So, um, and it's almost like a Gartner model. And so we actually pre-sold a bunch of those. Um, we had um, probably, I don't remember exactly, tens of thousands or a hundred thousand in pre-sales on that. And uh, that was mostly the same as selling a 299 thing, except the only difference is, is that uh, the buyer had to get some type of approval. So I guess before, I guess we should tell this story of selling to HubSpot. And then I have a question that will come back to this trends thing, because I think that there's some meat on the bone there. Um, selling your company, second time selling a company, biggest sale that you've ever done. You're not going to give me the number here, but we can say tens of millions of dollars in a life-changing personal sum of money. What? Yeah you know, what, in what ways was the culmination of these past sales? I'm sure it was very process driven, like these seven figure advertising sales that you did. What, to what degree did you have to, um, I don't know, utilize those versus learn new skills? I made one huge mistake early on and I benchmarked the price. Someone was like, what number are you looking for? And I said, these companies typically sell for two and a half to six times revenue. 
obviously they're going to start at two and a half. And right when I said that, I was like, fuck, fuck, fuck. I can't believe I said that. So that was the big mistake. But I did one thing really well, which is I've been courted a little bit to sell. And they emailed me and I was polite, but blunt. And I said, they sent me an email saying, hey, we want to partner with you. And I'm like, I, but, and the title of the person was in corporate development. And I'm like, hey, um, look, let's just cut to the chase. Are you wanting to buy us? If yes, say yes. If no, you know, oh, great. We can talk about something else. But if yes, um, I'm going to email you a list of all the reasons why you shouldn't buy us. And if any of those are red flags, we can continue talking. And they go, yeah, we want to buy you. And I go, great. Here's a document that explains everything that's bad about us. Because I know you, you most likely know what's good about us. I'm going to show everything is bad. And if that's a deal breaker, no, no problem. And I said that to them and they go, no, these are, none of these are deal breakers. So I was like, boom, got them. And so after that, I was like, they, they're going to buy us. The only thing is pricing. And, and that um, also takes show- their potential negotiating leverage off the table for later when they'd be like, oh, well, we just found out that you guys, you know, exactly. don't wear hats when you write or something. Exactly. Like Got it. That's a good one. I showed that I get like, like, I like showed them all the bad stuff right away. Where- and there, nothing was that bad. Um, but I like, I was like, I want to get any, I want to make you say no fast. Where'd you get that strategy from? Cause you study all the different entrepreneurs. You read the biographies. Where'd you get that? I made that up because, um, it's kind of like when you're dating in your thirties, like you got friends that date in their thirties, like on the third <laughs> date, they're saying like, Hey, so do you want to have kids? And do you see me as a, as the woman or man that you want to have kids with? And when you have like, a, when you, when you got, uh, you know, it's not, you're not 22, not you know, you can't just like kind of, yeah, spend six months and like, oh, I hope it works out when you're, you know, like 37 years old and you're trying to meet a mate. It's like on the second date, you're like, hey, so are you looking for marriage? Are you looking for kids? How many kids? Like you get down to business because you both like, you're both active. And so I was like, I'm going to use that approach. So I'm just going to be like, hey, cut to the chase. You trying to buy us? Okay, great. Here's why we suck. Does you still want us? And I just wanted to, I didn't want to waste time. So going through that arc, this is something literally light bulb only came on as I was talking with you. Um, there's all sorts of stories like this through business history where someone will build a company, they will sell it to a larger company. And then, and I'm not saying that HubSpot is mismanaging the hustle, but they're not focusing on trends as a business. And, you know, Michael Rubin, who, yeah. uh, you know, has a, as a minority owner in the 76ers and started Fanatics like sold his company and then rebought it back from the company that acquired it or rebought back part of it to run the company when he I would I would buy back I would buy back the hustle. The the entire hustle or specifically trends. Whatever they would let me whatever they'd be willing to sell. Interesting cuz I w- I have to imagine that if trends revenue isn't particularly meaningful for the bottom line. And they're selling like CRM ops software. So there isn't a super linear, like cross-selling connection between those two communities. I have to imagine that if you could almost like step away from the, not step away from the newsletter and the podcast, but know that that has this whole infrastructure behind it and just hone in on the repricing, the copywriting, the thinking through the strategy there. That seems like a, like a, if I was, you know, placing a bet, I don't know, above 10 to 20% probability for Sampar's future. I would, I could crush that business. And I, I'm still going to launch that one day, like a research business. I can make that into nine figures in revenue for sure. And our advertising revenue would have been tens of millions of dollars this year as well. Um, I don't regret selling though, because given the information that I had at the time and the mindset that I was in at the time, 
and the goals that I had for myself is the right move. But yeah, we would have been way bigger now in terms of revenue. Um, and uh, I could crush trends. I could run that business really well. And I'll do it eventually. So uh, what is uh, a major takeaway from Ted Turner? I know he's one of the media icons that you've got. What's something that you've just internalized from studying him? Move really fast. I think that like small companies, we really only have two advantages over big companies, which is speed and focus. Um, and he would move really fast. He also um, was an outsider. So he was from Georgia, but he, you know, uh, Time Warner is uh, the Time Warner Center is like in the heart of Manhattan. And so I think people dismissed him because he kind of talked with a twang and he was from the South. And so I was really inspired by the, how this outsider can just do it. He also just kind of clawed his way up. He started with billboards. He owned a really small billboard business. And then he bought a small radio station. And then he bought a local TV station. And then after like 25 years, he created CNN. And that took like 10 years to work. So it took a long time. So the biggest thing is um, if you're going to do something, it's a pretty good competitive advantage to be willing to dedicate 30 or 40 years to it. I've... Uh... So I've done hundreds of, of podcast interviews like this. I've spoken with so many different entrepreneurs, all sorts of different industries, um, devouring that information, probably to a fault, probably to the fault of like taking as many actions as I needed to, particularly early in my career. Um, but that's just like the way, I, I don't know if it's school or the way I was parented or, or whatever it is, how I've tried to figure out the lay of the land so that I could make good decisions. And I'm not saying that you didn't take action, but you are similar in that you have, like your whole show is just, hey, I was like researching this obscure business in order to try to understand how these things work. Do you get bamboozled when you talk to other entrepreneurs who do, that doesn't even like really cross their mind as part of their process for getting things going? Not exactly, because for two reasons. One, I recognize that there's a lot of ways to get it done. And number two, I think a lot of the people who say they don't, they do a lot more than they, 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 they think. Interesting. And I have a whole, my, here's, I have a very strong philosophy on that. And, and so it's, there's a few things going on here. So I research and read like crazy because A, I want to, I want to not repeat the same mistakes that they, that they made. And you could actually find recurring mistakes and it's like, all right, boom, don't do that. So I'm like learning a strategy Two. There's this phrase that you are the average of your five most friends or your five best friends. I feel like I'm the average of the five people I read and think about most. And so that definitely helps me. Three, if I study how other people do things and the, and the big things that they've done, really innovative things that done, done, it breaks my mental frame. So for example, when Roger Bannister broke four minute mile, um, people were like, oh man, you did it. And then like within five months, like four other guys did it. And there's a reason why, which is when one person sees what's possible, they have faith and they have hope and they work a little bit harder and it, and it makes it the norm. The reason why I lived in San Francisco, I have a bunch of friends that are like huge deals in terms of business. And at this point, it's regular to me. And so when I think about what I can achieve, it's no longer, can I do that? It's more so just like, do I want that? If I want that, I, I, I can do that. I can pull that off because it's just normal. You know, it's like, uh, it just normalized and so that's why i research like crazy and learn from other people um and also it, it just inspires me which is like a little fluffy but I, I get pumped up and i get inspired it makes me feel good and we're probably speaking to the i mean anyone that's stuck around this long into the interview is to some degree shape or form similar in that they're trying to figure out what other people are up to but do, do you also it's it's fun i find it fun it's just fun for me yeah it, but when you 
So you said that you think that folks that say they don't do that or don't acknowledge that maybe just don't realize it or don't think about it that way. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So my friend Goggin started this company called Udemy, and now he has this new company called Maven. We interviewed his, on... his co-founder, Wes, on Wes. the show. Yeah, she's lovely. She's great. And Goggin used to tease me. He's like, dude, you research so much. And I was like, bro, I go, um, what did uh, Udemy's competitor, I forget their name. It's a big course company. But I was like, hey, what was Teachable's revenue? And uh, he told me. And I go, why did they do so good? And he told, or I was like, what, you know, what were they different than Udemy? And he told me. And I go, uh, what about uh, Udacity? How are they doing? And he, and he like knew exactly like how they were doing and what the revenue. And he was, he was like, but the reason they're different from us is they're going after this. And I'm like, well, bro, you're like researching, like your competitors, like, you know, like you're, you're on top of it. Like, you know, what's going on. So like, we're kind of doing the same thing. And he was like, well, I didn't think of it that way. So I was like, well, it is, it is the exact same way. So like any, a lot of com- founders, they like, if you're beyond me, like, you know, like what impossible is doing and you know why it's good, why it's bad, why it's different, why it could be great, whatever you're, you're on top of it. So one of the time, and so that's the same thing. So one of the, the timeless lessons that most entrepreneurs have to learn at some point is to focus and to not be trying to like do these 10 different experiments and get all these things, these things done when one thing is working. And if you just quadruple down on it, your revenue is going to grow sales cures, all, all those kind of things. Inevitably you had to learn that lesson at some point over the last decade as you were building companies. But now, you know, you have the podcast, you have whatever the kind of earnout is or structure is within HubSpot that, that has you sticking around, but how have you tried to manage your focus in a situation where there isn't maybe the same financial impetus to have to get it figured out and you actually have like the resources and time to go run all these different experiments and explore stuff i don't do that many experiments even though i know a lot of people think it seem they think it seems that way but basically when i was running the hustle we didn't even have a uh like a twitter page for like the first two years we had a meeting every single week it was called the numbers meeting and it was just Let's talk about, did our email list grow by 3% this week? If yes, why? If no, why? It's like all I cared about. That's all I cared about for four years. I was very, very good at focus. I was like, nope. We're, uh, like uh, Herb Keller, the guy who started Southwest, he was like, we're going to be the cheapest airline. And someone came to him and goes, hey, should we offer a salad? And he goes, is that going to help us be a cheap airline? And they go, nope. And then he goes, then no, we ain't doing it. Like we're, It's all about the low-cost airline. So I got really good at, at saying, you just say no all the time, to be honest. Um, and you just focus on that one thing. And uh, that worked really well. Because if you look at it, for a lot of people, there's a lot of people now, like Warren Buffett or something like that, or whoever, some tycoon who is wealthy, and they've got their hands in lots of different stuff. But if you try to, like, if you backtrack and look at how a lot of people made the first amount of wealth that they were able to snowball, I mean, getting that first nut is like a really big deal. That first thing, typically it's like an 80 20 thing where it's like maybe you accumulated a little bit from this other thing but nine out of ten times most most all of it came from one thing um and so i recognized that and i was like all right i just gotta focus on this one thing that will give me enough money where i don't ever have to worry about money again and after that then maybe i can like spend time exploring and having fun and then i'll find the thing i really like and then go all in and focus on that just anything that's worth doing it's worth overdoing i think that you gotta focus um and you just basically have to say no to everything. And after you'd accomplish that, though, so so we uh, interviewed an uh, uh, entrepreneur who had a very similar story. He built a robotics company over eight years, 
And it was day and night. It was everything. It, it was the focus to the point that he made it. It was like some crazy thing, like six years without losing a single employee because of just the culture that he'd built and the maniacal commitment that he had given to what he was building. And then he sells the company and is adrift, like like literally feels lost because in your case, like didn't have the 3% meeting where I know that it's this number that maybe doesn't define whether or not I have a good week, but like significantly influences whether or not this was a right. good week for us. Like, did you experience any part of that, even though it was like, he, he, you know, I think he sold the company for $275 million or something like that. Like it's still this loss of partially how your identity was structured, partially how you kind of, well, I still do it. So like the first year after it's only been a, it's been a year and a month or something since we sold the first year, I was like, I'm just going to focus on my body. And so it was all about, um, like I had body goals. So I did the same thing. I just transferred it to a new, um, I, I was like, I'm not going to focus on business at all. All I'm going to do is the podcast and all I'm going to do is, um, my body, fix my body. And then I started angel investing and then I set goals. I was like, all right, we got to deploy this much capital with an, and so I did the same thing and, and the same thing. Now I'm in explore, exploration mode a little bit where I'm just like following my heart. I'm just doing whatever seems fun. If I like, it's like a dog walking down the street. They like catch a smell. I, I explore it. So I'm reading a lot. So I'm chilling because I know that uh, I'm, you know, like, have you ever met a veteran, like a, like a soldier? Yeah. I've got some in my family. Uh, and a lot of times the people that I've hung out with, at least they'll say it was really hard. It was scary, but man, I miss it. And that's how I feel where I'm like, I'm, I was, I was exhausted. I was tired. I needed time off. I needed a break, but real soon I'm going to get, I'm going to go to war again. Um, just because I, I need that, uh, I just like to fight. It's just fun, you know? So I'm going to do that eventually. And now I'm just plotting, I'm plotting, I'm reading, I'm, I'm consuming and I'm just preparing. And, um, so I don't have too much focus now, except on that. And it's also probably to some degree, you know, that you have the operational executional abilities and identifying the, you know, 10 out of 10 opportunity, as opposed to the two out of 10 opportunity where there's the right. leverage to make that happen is, is a big part of it. And I'm still doing a little two out of 10 opportunities just to keep my, my skill set, skill set sharp. So for example, uh, I launched like a little copywriting course. It's only like $89 and it's killing it. So making like a grand a day, uh, and people are like, why are you selling this $89 thing? And I'm like, I got to stay sharp, you know? So I, I'm like doing little things like that. What did you have to either get reminded of or learn in order to sell that $89 course well? Uh, I wanted to get back into copywriting. You could find it if you go to uh, trycopythat.com. Um, I basically taught myself how to become a copywriter by this using this learning methodology called copywork, which isn't very popular, but I think it's the best. And so I just teach people that methodology. And by the end of two weeks, they become much better at writing. And uh, you can see the landing page. It's like just, just text. And uh, I wanted to see if I could do that. And I was like, let's see if I can get this to be a 4% conversion rate on this landing page. And it is. What? And I get so much joy out of that. I, I get more joy out of that than selling a company for a lot of money. That's uh, that's funny. That I think that that's uh, edifying and, and relatable for a lot of uh, other folks out there. That's it's about the the journey and the tinkering and the exploration there. Yeah, I'm like uh, that. Like I get I wake up in the middle of the night just to check the Shopify conversion rate just to see what it is. One of the things that paralyzes people from starting new projects 
is worrying about the tool. So like, I want to start making videos, but like what camera, or I didn't want to start a website, but like what provider? And you've seen the tools that it takes to scale to millions of subscribers to the Hustles newsletter and, and things like that. Um, so, and you referenced Shopify here, which is a super robust, large platform for, for selling things online. Nowadays, how do you think about the tools that you use when you're building something? And what are you optimizing for in terms of like, this really matters and like this stuff really just doesn't move the needle. So I have a disdain towards people who do that. And so like, for example, people who collect domain names, they piss me off. People who say like, I can't do this without this domain name. So the copy that thing that I showed you, I made 20 grand at first off it. Um, and I didn't tweet it. I just went to Facebook groups and I posted it. People didn't know who I was. And it was on a Gumroad page with no custom URL. And it made $20,000. Um, and so I do that on purpose because I'm like, I don't need fancy tools. I, I don't need any of that. It's completely irrelevant. Now, if I'm starting a company and I know it's going to be big, and I know that because I'm, I have a little bit of experience and things like that, then yeah, selecting the right tools early on is important. But for the vast majority, and it's even not that important because you can always switch out of it. Most of the times you could switch out of it. But for the vast majority of people, basically everyone listening to this, I would even say that it doesn't matter what you use. It doesn't matter if you use ConvertKit, MailChimp. It, does, it matters not one single bit. It doesn't matter if you record with your iPhone or with this fancy camera that I'm using. It, it doesn't matter at all. And in nine out of 10 cases, I would say, use your cell phone. Don't even use a camera because my goal is two things. One, I want to reduce friction. So if I can't figure out how to upload video from this fucking camera, which I don't know how to, I'm just never going to record. I'm like, this is too much. I don't know how to do this. I had to pay a guy to come and set this up. I don't know how any of this works. But what I do know is I know how to use my phone and I know how to say cool shit to a camera. And I've done that. And so like, I'll get views because there's zero friction between me and creating. So I look for zero friction. The second thing is momentum. So I'm like, if I have an idea and I want to do it, I got to pursue it within minutes. And if there's any type of things that get in my way about momentum, I ain't doing it. So sometimes when you buy a domain name to get it set up on WordPress, it takes like 20 minutes. Like, no, 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 screw that. I'm just going to use like, you know, generic name dot squarespace dot com. That's just all I'm going to use. And it's going to work just fine. So like I I'm I really force myself constantly to reduce friction and to create momentum and I cannot stand when people use that they need a certain type of technology in order to um, start I, I think that those people are losers and that's a loser attitude and you really need to get out of that attitude Amen to that um, Sam this has been awesome I want to aim towards wrapping up uh, before I ask my standard last questions what were you hoping to share today that I didn't give you a chance to You guys can. Uh... Follow me on Twitter, the Sam Parr. Follow me on Instagram, the Sam Parr. I just did that thing, copy that. So try copy that.com. Let me know what you think. I'm promoting it. Um, nothing. I don't, oh, oh, duh. Listen to my first million. That's my podcast. That's like my biggest thing going right now. Me and my co-host, Sean, we're, we're killing it. We're doing a really good job. Listen to that podcast. You uh, have said that that was the one of the hardest things you've ever had to grow. Um, what would you tell Sam of two years ago about growing a podcast that you know now? Other than hiring Ben. Yeah. So um, I don't, the reason, like, I don't know why it's grown. So like, if you ask me how to get big, so like we're at 2 million monthly uniques now, monthly downloads, which um, I have to think is like top five most listened podcasts, business podcasts. 
And I don't know what we did. I have no idea why it worked. There's a couple things that did work, but I don't know if they actually moved the needle. I think what would work and we're starting to do now is you buy ads on other people's podcasts and you spend a lot of money and do it with a lot of people. And I think that's the, a surefire way to grow. The problem is, is that if you're not good, you're not going to retain people. The thing about podcasts is it's the hardest thing to bullshit. I can bullshit a D2C company by creating really cute photos and copywriting and getting you to give me your credit card information. You may not buy again, but I can get you to buy it first. Um, with a TikTok video, I can make a 30-second video. That's pretty good. With a video on YouTube, I can make a five-minute video. It's pretty good. But to create three podcasts a week that are each hour long, you can't really hide bad you know what I mean? You, so you got to be on top of your shit and you got to be really talented and really skillful and, and good. And I think that we are. Sean, my partner, is very, very, very talented. And so that's why it's hard to grow because you can't fake it, which you can fake a lot of other things. Do you think that that's also tied to the copywriting thing where you're being a good copywriter in written form translates into your skill as a podcaster? Yeah, definitely. 100%. That's I, that's why I think it's the best thing people can learn. It's basically what you're all you're trying to learn is how to influence people. And we're all trying to influence someone. So yeah, it's really important. Well, we're going to link all those digital coordinates that you referenced in the show notes for this episode. People can check it out. Uh, but before I let you go, Sam, I'd like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. What time of day does this episode air typically? Uh, Monday mornings. Great. By Monday night, you have to have this whole thing completely done. If you're listening to it by Tuesday, you got to get it done, completely done by the end of the night. Make a list of 50 people, no less than 50, of 50 people who you wish you could get in a room with, whether you want to learn from, you want to do business with, you just want to become friends with, you want to date, it doesn't matter. Make a list of 50 of them and do it in a spreadsheet. And on column one, put the names. Column two, put the emails. Column and find their emails and find their Twitter handle. It's really easy. You can use like email Fox, email Hunter, just do like email finder plugin. It's so easy. Find their email. And then in the second, uh, sorry, the third column, put messaged and then do that like eight times. And what you're going to do is you're going to cold email these people and DM them on Twitter. And you're going to put an X if they didn't reply. And then if you did get a reply, you put replied. And then you like put notes about what happened. And you're going to do that with 50 people. And you're not going to stop following up with them until they basically tell you to F off or just no. And so if they don't reply until number eight, doesn't matter. Keep going. You keep going and you use that, put those X's in that mark. And you, and you start doing that today. And you follow up with them every two days until they tell you to F off. And uh, that's, what, that's what you should do. It'll change your and, life, I think. And when you've done that... So as to not waste the opportunity with these people that you really want to get with, like what's your, I guess it's wildly different if it's like somebody you want to date versus somebody you want to be in business with, but what's your strategy yeah. going in so that they're just not like, this is a, a weirdo. If I don't have like a determined um, outcome, like I want them, this person to give me money, I want, inevitably the answer for me in most, or in most cases, the answer is inevitably in some period in our career i want to i want this person to give me money i want to give them money uh i want to do business with them i want to learn from them so most of the time when i do this i'm just trying to get on someone's radar and you if you're a young person below 30 you have a huge advantage here because people who are successful 
love and admire young people who are just trying to hustle and get shit done. And so if you write an email flattering an older person who's successful and you let them know, by the way, this is what I'm working on. Things are going well. You know, I don't even need a reply from you, but I'm going to send you an email every couple of weeks with just an update on what I'm working on. And maybe you'll, you'll dig it. And just getting a reply like, yeah, all right, sounds good. And then I've done that with dozens of people. And by month six, month eight, they go, hey, I'm in town. You want to hang out? Yeah, I do. And now I'm great friends with a lot of these people. And 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 then it's like, uh, hey, um, so I did this with the guy who started Guilt, Business Insider, and MongoDB. And I, I, I emailed them all the time. I said, Kevin, what's going on, man? I got a, I got a question I need to ask you. Um, or he'll say, hey, what's your opinion on X, Y, and Z? Now we're friends and now we're associates. I've done this with the founder of Pandora. I emailed them like 50 times before he replied. Now we go out to dinner with our families. So like, like it works really well. Right on. Well, Inside Baseball, this is the year in which I've been the most systematic about the people that I wanted to talk to on the podcast. You were on that list um, and we were continuing to knock them off through the remainder of the year. So uh, we'll see that played out for folks that maybe this is their first time listening because of Sam. Uh, you can hit subscribe here as well to check that out. But uh, I think that's a fantastic challenge everyone should act upon. Sick. Hopefully, thanks. Hopefully it works. Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. I appreciate it. No problem. I hope uh, it's a home run. We just went deep with Sam Parr. Hope you're not there. Has a fantastic day. Hey, thanks for watching to the end of my interview with Sam Parr. If you're interested in an interview with another top digital marketer, check out our recent past interview with Tucker Max, all about the concept of Doomer optimism. Tucker was an initial investor in Sam's company, The Hustle, and has had his own string of entrepreneurial and writing successes. Check it out.